Hey, Pregnish listeners, we surveyed almost 1,100 patients to learn why they left their fertility clinics and are launching an amazing new program based on the survey that will reach over 1,000 healthcare providers. Thanks to the support of industry sponsors, Cooper Surgical Fertility and Genomic Solutions, and EMD Serono. This innovative program with 25 top fertility advocates and specialists as speakers has just launched. If you're interested in learning more, taking the free course, or supporting the program, visit PregnantishVerified.com. Welcome back to a new season of the Pregnish Podcast, where we tell the story of families built against all odds. Today's episode is, I went through menopause in my 20s, and I think this is an undertold story. Well, we all know growing up a little bit like what menopause means. Right. And I think it's mostly given to us humorously, right? It's it's related to your parents, your mom, these older women, they're going through the change. You know, if your period signifies your coming of age to be able to have kids, then menopause is that finite statement that you're coming out of that. Today's episode, I went through menopause in my 20s, is an unexpected and undertold story about infertility. When we think of infertility and menopause, we don't generally picture someone who looks like today's guest, Kelly McClay, who is a fit, healthy, and young-looking marathon runner. Kelly didn't think of herself this way either when she was told that her ovaries look like, quote, shriveled raisins. Ugh, we're going to have to hear about that. That's why at just 24 years old, Kelly became one of the one in 1,000 women who reach menopause before the age of 30. And for those of you wondering, the average age to start menopause in the U.S. is 51 years old. Premature menopause is defined as a condition in which the ovaries stop working and periods stop completely before the age of 40 to 45. There are other infertility diagnoses like POI or primary ovarian insufficiency that can also create menopause in young women. And yet, we don't hear these stories enough, and many think infertility is almost always caused by a woman who just waited too long to start trying. We're sitting down with Kelly to hear about this confusing diagnosis and the events that have since transpired, including launching her passion for marathon running and embracing third-party reproduction. So Kelly, welcome I'm so glad you're here to the Pregnish Podcast. Thank you, Andrea. I'm so excited to be here today to speak on what I think is a really important topic in the, you know, the fertility world, and especially for women that may be struggling through this early diagnosis. Absolutely. Can you tell us in your own words, I introduced you, but who are you? Who am I? I'm, I'm Kelly. Um, I'm a mom of, thankfully, a mom after a long journey of two beautiful children and you know, a wife. I'm the founder and CEO of Fitness International Travel. We bring runners around the world to run marathons. It is my passion to see and, and run. And so I reside in Boston with my family and run that business. Amazing. So I know you know how important this topic is. And I just wonder, just let's go to the beginning. When did you first know you may have an issue conceiving or were, was it completely a surprise when you started trying? I, th I think with maybe many of us, I was blindsided by this. It was the last thing I expected. So no, I wasn't. When I found out, 
I was unaware that this this was a diagnosis that I was going to receive. I knew that something was wrong. I was in my 20s. I was going to bed at 8 p.m. and waking up at 8 a.m. and I was still tired. And I would ex- feel like I had peed the bed. And I was like, this is really strange. And so... I went to a few doctors um, for about a year, and at this time, I now had gained a lot of weight. I was very depressed. I wasn't going out with my friends. And, you know, you're in your 20s. I had just graduated college. Everybody was out, you know, celebrating, having fun. You know, they had their own income, their own apartments. And I would go out, and I'd be asleep at the bar in the middle of all this chaos. And so... I went to my doctor finally and I said, you know, she kind of said, why are you here? Your symptoms haven't changed. And I said, because this isn't me. I just knew something was wrong. So I sought a second opinion and this doctor decided to listen. And what I was saying to her felt crazy. But I just said, look, I'm, I go to bed at eight. I wake up at eight. I feel like I've peed the bed every night. These symptoms that I was saying felt ridiculous to say. And she said, have you ever had your thyroid checked? And I said, oh, I had that when I was a child, but it went away. I was a little naive to it. She said, that doesn't go away. And at this point, you know, I wasn't in thinking about fertility. You know, I now know how much the thyroid affects fertility. But to me, this was something I dealt with as a child. So she checked my thyroid levels. My metabolism was basically that of a 94-year-old. Oh, my gosh. And you were 24. Yes, which would explain why... I was going out with my friends and I was falling asleep at the bar and they thought, what is like, we don't want to deal with Kelly, you know, (laughs) going to sleep. And now that I knew that there was something wrong, she, the doctor offered, please let me know if there's anything else. And so I told her the rest of my symptoms. And what were some of your other symptoms? Oh God, they're not fun. (laughs) We can, we can have real talk here, but share whatever you want. (laughs) No, I just, um, like I said, I feel like I peed the bed. I was, um... I was depressed. I would be happy. I would be sad. My friends didn't know what to do with me because I have a lot of energy to begin with. And I'm a little crazy, but this was a hot mess, Kelly. I was drinking a little too much and I was sad at one minute or then I'd be mad at you or then I'd be real happy. It sounds manic. it It was all over the place. I was all over the place. And when you're describing these feelings to a doctor, a medical professional... You just feel like what you're saying is crazy as well. And you can't piece it together. But this doctor did listen. And so she ran this test. I didn't know she was running the test. She ran this test called the FSH. And so I'm out with friends. The Boston Red Sox are in the World Series. I know when we're in New, we're in New York, but. <laughs> well, you're, but you're originally from Massachusetts, correct? Yes, I'm from Boston. And so she called and left a message with this FSH results. And I didn't know what it meant. And so my doctor wasn't open. So I went to my gynecologist and I said to her, I got this test. These are the results. Do you remember the number? I was at a 50. Okay. So for those listening, I don't know what within quote unquote normal ranges for someone in her early 20s, but it's a heck of a lot lower than that, the FSH level. And so I said, where is someone my age on the scale? And she said, they're not. And that that was p- pretty much when I knew that it was a done deal. That must have been really intense for you. When you say a done deal, what, what did that mean to you? 
Well, we all know growing up a little bit like what menopause means, right? And I think it's mostly given to us humorously, right? It's it's related to your parents, your mom, these older women, they're going through the change. You know, if your period signifies your coming of age to be able to have kids, then menopause is that finite statement that you're coming out of that. And she was very genuine. She didn't know how to break it to me. That moment was very genuine because she said, they're not on the scale. And so I knew at that point that my my dreams of having my own children were done. Wow. In your, your, in your early 20s, I, I imagine, I mean, I don't know because your personal situation, but at 24, I wasn't thinking of having children, but I certainly wouldn't have wanted the opportunity to be taken away from me. What went through your head at that point? Absolutely not, right? I, I wasn't thinking that, but all of a sudden I was thrust into this world of this diagnosis. And my friends were not in this at all. Like everybody was out on the pill. They're having sex. They're having fun. They're trying not to get pregnant at all costs. And now all I can think about is trying to hold on to any last flicker of fertility that I had. And I was grasping at it. Like, you know, when, when all of a sudden something is not there, you want it more than anything. And this was something I wanted in the future. My mom ran a daycare growing up and was always around kids. I always wanted to be a mom. And so this diagnosis was very finite. And I grappled with it a lot because a lot of women at that time, you know, as I went through the diagnosis, had cancer or were struggling with more. And I had a thyroid condition. So I felt guilt being so sad about what happened because it wasn't a death sentence, right? For me, this is a manageable thing. One thing that we know, and I know you know by now with all your advocacy and awareness, is that it's often called the grief Olympics with infertility. There's no, there's, I mean, when we just, when sex does not make baby, it's painful no matter what. And so whether that means two-year struggle, a 10-year struggle, IVF, IUI, miscarriage, whatever it means, it sucks and it's painful. And how did your community of friends and family respond? Did they understand? Did you feel any support? Were you feeling isolated? What? Take us back to that. How did you manage this? It's really funny because it's so weird. Menopause is such an awkward thing to talk about, right? And menopause for someone in their 20s, they just don't, they're not sy like synergistic. And so I actually, a lot of my friends couldn't relate to me, not to their detriment. It's just all of a sudden, we weren't going through the same things. That diagnosis thrust me into a world of mammograms and Kegel balls, exercises that I needed to do to build up the elasticity of my vagina. Like everything was going to get dry and fall apart. I had to think about bone loss and bone density. Should I go on hormones at such a young age and risk, you know, increased chances of cancer? Or do I not go them and go on them and risk heart? disease? Do I do soy? Do I do all of these things where you're just trying to be in your 20s? Kegel balls, like the conversations were so not for someone in their 20s that I ended up rallying. There's this beautiful story that came out of this about me and my mom and her friends. And so I joined their volleyball team. <laughs> A bunch of these women in their 50s and me in my 20s. And 
I would invite my now husband to come and watch me play with these women, which I think is hilarious because we were not a spectacle of athleticism. (laughs) (laughs) But it was beautiful because they could relate to me. They were all going through menopause. And so it was really my mom and her friends that became my sounding board, could understand my ups and downs, could understand the grieving of going through this process because it was physical and mental. It is. I mean, and I think any infertility diagnosis is physical, mental, spiritual, relational. It hits you financial. It hits you on every level. I read uh, your story in Women's Health Magazine. Of course, you and I met on the She Summit stage last year on an infertility panel. And then I read this story about your journey and I was so inspired by it. But this technician saying shriveled raisins, I can't get that out of my head. When did that happen? And who was that? I want to scream at her. Oh, I I still get choked up when you say it right now. Because so I got the diagnosis, but that wasn't, you know, the last part. I then had to proceed to go through doctors and my mom joined me and I got to this one doctor and they set up a series of things. So I needed to have a mammogram. I also needed to have ultrasounds to check out the status of my ovaries and to see if there was any follicle growth. And so I was in one of these sessions. Yeah, she was looking for my ovaries and I was laying there on the bed and we all know how uncomfortable the setting is anyway. And vulnerable. Yes. And, you know, when you think of ultrasound and word association, you know, if I said red, you'll probably go to apple. If I say ultrasound, you'll probably go to baby. And clearly I knew I was there on determining how far along my body had digressed. And I was just laying there and she couldn't find my ovaries and I was just being patient and she was struggling and she was kind of talking about it. And then she just said, as I was laying there, oh, there they are. They look like shriveled raisins. And I think I just, I laughed as immediate reaction, but I, tears just were dripping. And you're still emotional. Um, what do you think is coming up when you, when you remember that for you? Well, I think for me, cause it just, it, it just pounded in that I was facing all this older stuff as a 20 year old and my body had died. Like, so even though it wasn't a death sentence, really a part of me had died. And that kind of confirmed it. And when I came out of that session, I had to meet with this doctor who was horrible as well. I haven't gone back to that facility. I changed. Oh my goodness. Thank goodness. (laughs) You should never, ever have to deal with that. And you should say, say something. So I try to learn from these things. And by sharing them, I try to empower people to just politely say like, there's a better way or, but I came out of that to meet with the doctor and she just, she looked at me and she said, well, at the end of the day, I can get you pregnant, but it won't be your baby. Oh my goodness. Another fail. I just, I want it out of there so bad. First of all, for you now and for you then as a 24 year old, I am so sorry you went through that because nobody should be treated that way, especially in such a vulnerable position. I I was once, when I learned in 2012 that I needed my fibroid removed because it was covering my tubes and ovaries, a doctor said to me, how could you not know this tumor was in you? It's like you have two 
babies' heads in you. She knew I'd been trying to get pregnant for years. What a terrible visual she gave me. And I never went back to that clinic. It's a horrible visual. But, you know, I think to your point, all of these and our listeners who have gone through any, not just in reproductive uh, medicine, any healthcare situation where you're vulnerable, you need the person to be as competent as uh, you need him or her to be caring and uh, frankly, emotionally intelligent because it's, it's just not okay. And so obviously you never went back, but when you left that office, take me back there. Like what happened next? What did you do? Well, my mom was there. You know, I think the interesting thing about this too is I'm not there with a partner. And so it was me and my mom. And my mom was feeling a little bit like, oh my God, I birthed this child. And now she's, she was feeling some pain to this too. And I left there not really knowing what to do. Like this was a new norm for me. And I just, I got so depressed And this kind of spiraled me into a really bad spot. I had these older women, but I started maybe drinking a little too much, you know, staying in. I was tired. I was gaining weight. I was lethargic. I, this kind of transitioned to a period of me trying to figure out what this all meant, which is normally what your 20s are anyways, but add this layer of 50-year-old disease and end of your fertility, I felt old. My body felt old and I felt like I was sandwiched into this diagnosis. So it, it, it did spiral me at that point, leaving that meeting. And well, and for a while, when you talk about grasping onto things, I was dating a, a gentleman at that time. And for some reason, I thought the answer was, let's just try to get pregnant. So he knew what was going on and you just said, let's do it. Let's go for it. Yes. Like I said, I was grasping like at anything that would salvage any last flicker of what, fertility. What did he say when you said that? He was like, okay, yeah, that's great. Let's go, you know? And, but he was just the wrong person. Like it was just, <laughs> right. that was wrong. And it, I mean, I think we all had those moments in our twenties anyway, yes. where we're really glad you didn't get pregnant with him. But how do you date during this diagnosis in oh. general? Yeah, it's not pretty. I mean, and when you're talking about Kegel balls, you know, and gels and liquid, because I was drier, I was, you know, there is nothing fun about all these things. And so dating, I was a little kamikaze, right? So this, let's call this this hot mess period. Literally, I was having hot flashes. My bed was wet. Hot flash mess. Yes. Yeah. And I was on an emotional roller coaster, literally. And... So, and I like to do and be spontaneous. So that only exacerbated, my personality only exacerbated this, which I love. (laughs) Well, this is what's so amazing because you're a dynamic, vivacious person. And you're, and so when you say to your doctor, this is not me, you knew, your instinct knew, yeah, something is off. But you're probably trying to hang on to Kelly while your hormones are all over the place. Which just spun it into this mess. So... Dating during this time, like, yeah, I was dating, but it it was, you know what I did? I blurted it out. (laughs) (laughs) On dates. Yes. Awkwardly. I'm like, I went through menopause. I'm in menopause. Like, because I didn't know what to do with it. And it was so shocking to me. I think I was still shocked that this was happening and that I was just very open about it. And back in 2004, 2005, this was like not, even now, someone in their 20s said that to you, you'd be like, yeah. 
And but I just needed to talk about it. I need to get it out. It was happening to me. It was causing me this emotional and physical pain so much so that I flew down to my friend's wedding and I had now been through menopause for a while and I was still navigating who I was. I didn't have I I graduated from a, a pretty reputable college. I felt confident in my intellect, but I didn't have a job. I flew down to my friend's wedding. She was my roommate in college. And her mom looks at me and says, Kelly, you know, can you just not be you this weekend? Oh, that's terrible. That's terrible. Oh, my goodness. Because you could have a playbook of what not to say to (laughs) Kelly. But I kind of knew what she meant. I was still a hot mess. And so I land at this wedding. And this is the wedding where I met my husband. And... You know, you're, it was not. Let's. It was a cringe moment. Let's. We'll forget the details, but let's just say it was very cringy. And on the on the way we're leaving, we take a taxi to the airport, and I've known him for two days. And we sit down to have like this farewell beer, and I said, and I just laid it all on the table. So from the moment I met him, he knew this is who I am. This is what I went through. This is what I'm dealing with, and I can't have my own kids. And I think. At first, I would say that because it was a shock value, but I knew this is who I was and I was in my 30s and people needed to know and I didn't want to waste time. Like if you can't deal with like me not having my own kids and a long journey, then you should know first, but probably not the way you meet someone, (laughs) but you married him. So what did he say when you told him that? He was so genuine. I think he, he didn't know what to do and he kind of, he's very, we're very different. Um, and he's, he's incredible from that first moment. It didn't really matter. Like he just really did love me for who I was. And yeah, so we met that weekend. We, that was in January. We talked on the phone for eight hours one night, which my friend said, that's a work day. (laughs) It (laughs) it is. And we decided to move, give it a try. And he moved from Colorado to Boston. Wow. And so... Once you married, what was your process of starting a family? What what did you discuss and what happened? And I think this is where we maybe had it a little easier than some other couples. You know, I went through the messy doctor's diagnosis answers with my mom and this whole group of women who were going through it. And he knew the weekend he met me. He knew a lot the weekend we met. But. <laughs> so we we kind of knew going into getting married, like that we had this expectation. And I think that that gave us a fair advantage in our marriage and in our relationship. But again, like it's funny when you go through this, like we met with a doctor and we sat down and we're like, okay, let's not beat a dead horse. Like, let's just go off all the hormones. Could we, could we get pregnant? And she was like, okay, I understand you guys are in shock. Mm. We're like, no, 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 that's not us. Like, and so it was very important. So we left that meeting and be like, she couldn't ebb and flow with us. And so it was important for us again to find a team that ebbed and flowed with us. And we embarked after we were married for a little bit, we married in 2013, and we decided in 2014 to start going the donor route. Because there's a lots of considerations you can take in. Donor egg, adoption, not having kids. And we really wanted to to create a family. And so we selected to choose to look for a donor and go down. A donor egg? Donor egg. Yes. Because there's also donor embryos, but you guys decided you'll use your husband's sperm and a donor egg. 
Yes. And so what was that process like? Oh, God, where do we begin? <laughs> do we have time? Well, you know, the interesting thing about the Pregnish podcast is no story is short or fun, but always inspirational in the end. But this one, uh, third party reproduction is its own episode always. Can you give us the broad strokes of, you know, where you went to look for an egg donor, what you and your husband looked for, what you discussed, what resonated? Just take us back to that. Yeah. Then you hit this whole other lot of emotions that you don't expect as a female. The quick note. So together, at first, I wanted to find someone that looked like me, right? To replicate that. Like, and then you go into, you're not pompous or anything, but you're like, nobody can be like me. And you have all these emotions like, will the baby look like me? Will we need to do that? And, and then you think, oh my God, are they smart enough? Like, are, what are their illnesses? Because you get, you know, when you go to an agency and, and we looked at a lot, you get a small profile. And so you start thinking about all these things that you, that kind of tumbleweeds. <laughs> And you end in a rabbit hole. And I'll never forget our my psychologist, you know, because you have to meet with a, you have to need a legal team, you need a psychologist team to check that if you're a sound of mind, the donors of sound mind, you have your IVF team, you have your medical team. I think a lot of your listeners probably know this. And so our psychologist in one meeting said the best thing. She said, at the end of the day, don't get caught up in all those statistics. You're not doing that when you met your husband, right? So at the end of the day, just pick the person that you'd have a beer with. Yeah, I love that. Absolutely, right? And so we decided to narrow it down on three key things, which I think really helped us. One, we wanted ethnicity. So I'm Irish-Italian descent. So we said, let's look for a donor that's Irish-Italian. Two, we wanted physique. I'm fairly athletic. And so it really was important to me that the build was at least structure-wise athletic. And three, personality. And the donor we ended up going with gives me the chills. I believe in signs. I don't know if you believe in signs. Oh, well, I, I have to for the way I built my family. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And so, oh, well, science, signs. like Oh, um, signs. I thought you said science. I believe in science, too. I believe in signs and science. Yes. So we're like-minded that way. Excellent. Science is pretty amazing. So, signs. This was the first profile I looked at and her, we have the same picture in the same spot in Australia, in the same type of bikini, which is an Australian flag bikini, five years apart. No. Yeah. What? I can show it to you. Weird. Yes. Okay. So that you look at that, you probably got chills yeah. and that was it. That was it. And it was after our psychologist said like, Pick the per personality, right? The person you have a beer with. Who would you hang out with? Oh, my gosh. So once you picked this donor, then what happened? So IVF, I feel like it's a hurry up and wait game. And it's funny. The Our lawyers were like, well, you have to be worried about agencies because sometimes they put a doppelganger out there and then they're not available. Like, you have to believe in this process. And I know that's hard to rely on someone else. And it's scary. Um, 
But we picked the donor. She did have some families in front of her. One of my friends actually be- looked at her. I said, well, this is our donor. And she's like, it looks like she's lying on her resume. <laughs> Too good to be true. Exactly. So all of these things. And I said, you know what? I'm just powering through. I saw the signs. And so we we start the motions and send in the non-refundable deposit, mostly cash. And we set into motion. And we were paired with her almost two years later. Yeah. I, I get that from going through gestational surrogacy. It's similar with people dropping in and out, lawyers, psychological evaluations. Nothing is a just step. Just do that. But two years later, you got a call that you could have a transfer, an IVF transfer with her egg and your husband's sperm and make an embryo. Yeah. And we were like, okay, it's finally here. Like after all of these steps, like, you know, meeting someone that could accept this and finding a donor, which was a hard one and getting through the lawyers and signing a contract and paying the money and we're here. And so my husband and I, she flew up. And actually, so a little bit before this, I decided to meet her, which is another decision that people... Definitely. Some things are, as we know, totally blind, anonymous uh, donation, but you decided you wanted to meet her. So what happened? Oh, it was... I'm so glad I did. We're very similar. So we had this beautiful conversation. Her and I both do iced coffees. You know, we really have similar personalities. Where does she live? Uh, She is in Florida. She's originally from Baltimore. And so it was beautiful getting to meet her. My husband didn't at that time. And so then we got to the transfer and my husband and I said, all right, let's do this like vacation away because we're like, we're here. I'm going to have to start. I had already been starting a large regiment of medication. To prepare your body for implantation with this embryo? Yes. So because my body is extremely depleted in estrogen, I'm on three oral pills of estrogen, three vaginal pills of estrogen, an IM progesterone shot, sometimes almost daily. I'm on selenium. Oh my gosh, so many drugs. there's so many. We're on a serum. We're on a a chemistry, we're a chemistry dress. (laughs) But so, so we get a call when we're away. Now, mind you, we've flown her up. So she's she's up there. We're going through. We're getting calls daily. The follicles are growing. And then we get a call that says, it's done. It's over. And my husband and I burst into tears. We're like, we thought all of our money, because literally all of your eggs are in one basket. Like at that point, the donor's there. They've decided to go through this. And we get this call. And it's one of those IVF moments where you're like, it's not a just this. It's I didn't see that coming. Well, you know, one thing we we discussed, we had an episode of the show where we interviewed a former egg donor and someone who used an egg donor and both shared that it's not a straight path. I mean, you, you may take years to decide to use a donor and think, well, that's the answer and now it will work. And you might still have hiccups there. And I don't think people realize that because they finally wrap their head and heart and bank account around the step. Right. So did you guys try again with her? What what was that process? So this was March of 2016 and she was devastated. I mean, this takes a toll on donors as well. She's physically going through the medication. She's going under surgery. She's flying back and forth. She's balancing time off. And she was sad and she got on the phone with us and she said, I'm so sorry I let you down. And I, oh my God, like I said to her, don't you even apologize. Like, I'm sorry for you. I felt so, I mean, we were crying. She was crying. And she said, I gave you my word. I'm coming back. I'm going to do this again. We'll try it again. And 
it wasn't even a thought at that time. Like I just felt bad that she was so devastated because we were putting her through this emotional turmoil. And she's like, I'm there. We're going to do it. And so she flew back home. Do you know she did a, another retrieval? She built up again and we did the retrieval in May. And the day that she went in for surgery, we got there. The day we went for surgery, we said, you know what? We're, we're all going to go out. And so my husband and I and her, we went out <laughs> to this great Italian dinner and we had a lot of bubbles and we just shared a lot of, a lot of things. And my, my husband was hesitant to meet her or not. And, you know, she told us that sometimes she doesn't get to meet the families. Like she's giving a part of herself, but she doesn't get to meet the families. And we just thought it was really important for her to see like what she was doing, like what unselfishly she was doing for us. Oh, that's beautiful. I think it's so cool that you guys had that opportunity to connect that way over bubbles and just, you know, it's, it's a, it's a privilege that many people don't have and, and they couldn't, they wouldn't, they, for many reasons, people feel that we've interviewed anyway, they want that distance. Yeah. But if you, if you are open to having that connection for all involved, it must be so special and, and meaningful. It was, and it, it really reassured me in the beauty of all of this, as hard as the needles and the doctors and the admin and the legal tape is, there's something very beautiful about women giving back to women and about the female body. And it was, it was a moment that I will never forget. It was at that retrieval that we actually, we, God, we were so lucky. We got an incredible incredible retrieval. Mm. We ended up with 17 day five embryos. Oh my gosh. And I think my husband and I were like, oh my God, like we had the, we had the, yes, finally. Like, you know, after thinking it was all over a month prior and, you know, five days after our nice little bubbly night, we did our transfer and I got pregnant. I sent her a necklace kind of after my daughter was born, thanking her for just the shared mutual respect. Amazing. I love that. I know that on this journey, you also, your passion for running was sparked. How did that happen? And what inspired you to start running? Yeah. So I get, I get judged a lot because I'm not, I'm a smaller physique. And so I've run a lot of marathons, as you know, and a lot of people think that my marathons, you know, when we were talking earlier when we started about how People think it's because someone waited too long or they think I went through menopause because I ran too much and I lost my period because I'm a smaller person or all of these stigmas when they look at a, when you look at someone, right? You just can't do that because I find myself saying a lot, it's not because I run marathons. I always say people, people in war-torn countries get pregnant every day yes. <laughs> under much more stress and duress. So it's, it's not because you were running. Thank you. Yes, that's what our psychologist said this too. I love her. You should meet her then. Um, <laughs> so couldn't relate to anybody. And as much as I love that beautiful pact of menopausal women that I went to see the musical menopause with in my 20s, <laughs> I still needed to feel young and... I needed to feel that I was beautiful and youthful and could do challenging things and still had this 20-year-old body. And so my sister and her friends were running a marathon, the Boston Marathon, and I needed a goal. 
and I couldn't run a mile at that point. I barely got out of bed at that point, just from weight gain and stress and emotional trauma and feeling like a part of me was dead and I acted like it. And so I sort of latched onto them. I'm not so sure I was invited, but wow, what wonders by them just saying, yes, you can join. And I went out on this first run. I said, let me join, let me join. And my sister said, no, you can't, you know, you're not gonna be able to keep up. And I said, yes, I can. Cause I was always athletic and, you know, thyroid conditions cause weight gain and lethargy and all of these things. So I was in that and I thought that I was my athletic self. Boy, was, was she right? <laughs> they left and she started running and I couldn't keep up, but one mile turned into two miles and two into 10. And I had these long, cold winter runs because the Boston Marathon's in April. And I would just go out. And I think that I just pounded the pavement with all of the pain and the isolation and feeling alone in this diagnosis and not being able to relate to anyone. And it's emotional. So I was emotional anyways. And so I poured everything into that physical feat. How many marathons have you run? 70. 70. 70? Okay. Wow. So you're, I just love that because I think, again, we talk a lot, anytime we're, we're talking about disease or a diagnosis that's heartbreaking, not everyone's going to turn their pain into purpose. And we don't blame them if they don't. But when we can find something to control when everything feels out of control, it gives us back some power. Uh, is that what it did for you? Absolutely. And it was the only thing that I had that made me feel confident at that time. And it was a big enough goal. Like I actually thought it was stupid. How could I go from not making one mile to finishing the Boston Marathon? And everything was hinging on making, like finishing that distance for me at that time. How would you compare, uh, you know, so, <laughs> metaphorically, the, the length you went to to build your family and these marathons, because I often compare infertility to an endless marathon. And with a marathon, you have a finish line. Right. With infertility, you don't know what that is. But can you compare them in your head? Well, I, I think that the metaphor is really well situated in this. You know, I often say it was, you know, marathons to motherhood or menopause to motherhood and all the miles in between. And so for me, yes, like the ebb and flow of trying to start again or do this distance, it's very fitting. And it it did. It just ebbs and flows well with my life and with the journey and with the obstacles and the keep, just keep on running, keep on trying. Yes. And I know with your most recent pregnancy and your kids are adorable because I follow oh, you on thank Instagram, you. <laughs> but that one, uh, you know, uh, that was a long journey too, a, a long marathon too. So your second child, was it the same egg donor or a different egg donor? And can you tell us, I know it's a long process, but what happened? I was recently having a conversation. I think it's important to talk about this stuff with a friend who's going through IVF right now, like, well, infertility. We were just talking and I was saying like, yeah, I have no problem entering a marathon because it know it's going to be hard and I know it's going to be long and I know that I'm going to go through these physical things. And I think with IVF, that's what we're facing as well, right? We know it's going to be long. We know it's going to be hard. We know there's some obstacles. But like you just said, I said to her, I go, but I would never enter a marathon where I don't know the finish line or where the finish line keeps moving. It keeps moving. And I think with IVF and with COVID, 
this is what we're all facing, like a finish line that is just feels constantly untangible. But what I will say is that if you just keep running and that's how I kind of took it. So when we, I just kept saying, just keep running, just one more mile, just one more step to get back to your question. We had Scarlett, I got pregnant the first time. And I think we were like, yeah, we conquered the IVF challenge. (laughs) And I think now I look back and I say, God, we were real naive because this is another didn't see that coming. And we had 17 embryos that made it to day five after Kate donated. And we implanted two with Scarlett because we figured two was better than none. Because they weren't PGTA tested. No, we didn't. So at that point, another decision, right? And so we had 17 embryos and our doctor said, look, you've spent a lot of money right now. You have 17 embryos. Your donor's 28. There's going to be a good one in there. So, you know, my husband and I look back and say, God, we were so naive. So we had Scarlett. Like we planned, we transferred two. We got pregnant with Scarlett. We thought, okay, this is it. And I had a very short pregnancy with her, preeclampsia, another story. And preemie, she was born seven weeks early. But yes, yeah, so we go to to do the transfer for number two. We decide she's about a year old. We're ready to try again. I'm getting a little bit older. And we go in. Mind you, I actually was supposed to do the transfer in January. January 26th, it's Australia Day. You, we know I love Australia. <laughs> and I pushed it off because I got a call. I also love marathons and I do believe that, you know, the marathon was the thing that helped me get out of this mental state and helped me stay confident and feel youthful. And so I ran throughout my pregnancies and pregnant with Scarlett, even if it was IVF, I ran a marathon with her 27 weeks pregnant. Wow. Yeah. So I got this call and mind you, we're in a cycle and I'm taking my medication and I I say to my husband, I just got asked to do the world marathon challenge. (laughs) And he said, okay, you you gotta, you gotta go. Right. And so the world marathon challenge is seven marathons on seven continents in seven days. And I did, I said to my doctor, I said, the the psychologist, is this too much stress? You know? And she she said, look, women in Africa pregnant all the time, (laughs) you know? And I said, okay, well, I got to go. And so I'm in a cycle. I'm taking my meds. I have my meds on the plane, flying around the world, running these marathons. And I come back and I think, oh, no, 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 we're not going to get approved. My body's so depleted. Would you know my numbers were better, right? (laughs) So anyway, sorry, this gets back to your question on number two. And so we said, we're feeling really confident. We go in for number two. We do the transfer seven days after I get back from this crazy feat and I get pregnant. And the numbers look great and I'm getting my levels and the HCG is tripling. And I put my daughter in a big sister shirt well before she should have been. But, and we show my parents and everybody's excited. And the next day I was, I was bleeding. Devastating. It was because we were so confident and, I think this is where you just never know what's going to happen on the journey. And this is where you need that enduring mentality. We ended up losing that singleton pregnancy. We then, the HCG had to come down. We did another transfer. It didn't take. We did another transfer. I got pregnant. It looked great. We lost twins. Mm. And so the long end of it is we went for number two, I experienced multiple miscarriages. 
un- unexplained. Everything looked amazing, but I got pregnant four times. Hmm. We did seven rounds and we were down to our last embryos. You have taken a lot of hormones in your life. Way too many. <laughs> Way too many. Wow. Well, you know, we can't put a neat little bow on any of the, our stories that are so full of pain. But one thing that I feel, and you mentioned signs before and science, is the blessings that have come through this crazy journey. And when you're in it, you want to slap people when they say, oh, it'll all make sense one day. You know, pain <laughs> doesn't make sense. Stop saying that. But when you think back to this journey and you see your two little kids, what comes up for you? You know, it was a long journey. It was a marathon, right? But how beautiful is the finish line now? And how much did I learn about myself and the strength that becomes and the community? Look, I would never have seen the world. I never would have started running marathons. I never would have opened my own company, bringing women and around the world to run marathons. You and I wouldn't be here talking about these important things that do I wish I wasn't part of this club? Like maybe some days, but what a freaking awesome club of supportive women navigating difficult journeys and finding a way to find the right finish line for them. Kelly, your your story of endurance, uh, despite all the pain on the path to parenthood is so inspiring. And thank you for being on the Pregnish Podcast. You embody what this podcast is about, which is building your family against the odds. And when I look at your family photo, and by the way, if you're walking down the street with your beautiful kids, nobody knows the backstory. And I always tell our audience or any listeners, you never know what's happening in the lives of the people you envy. Because there's always a story that is unexpected. And in your case, so inspiring. So thank you again for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks again for listening to another episode of the Pregnantish Podcast. If you're not already subscribed, be sure to subscribe now wherever you listen to podcasts. And hey, if you like it, leave us a review. We are new. We are growing. We have many more great stories to tell. See you next time.